You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians and to chapter 6. And as you turn there, I'm very grateful that uh, Joe called me and extended this invitation to me um, for a number of reasons. The first one is because I counted a unique privilege to be included in the uh, Calvary Chapel family, albeit as an apostle untimely born, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm not really a card-carrying member, but uh, I I am a huge fan, and I regard it as a a very happy thing that uh, over the years that I have had the privilege of being around these parts, that uh, these kind of invitations have come, and I have learned so much from you men, and I continue to learn a great deal from you. And uh, I rejoice in our fellowship in the gospel. I'm also glad to be here because I haven't really been anywhere for for a long time. (laughs) And and frankly, this wouldn't be my first choice either. But uh, um, no, I don't mean the conference. I mean the location, for goodness sake. uh, no, this is this is good. But my my wife, she started to say in the last uh, two or three months, you know, don't you have somewhere to go? And uh, uh, so I was uh, I was delighted to get up this morning and say, yes, I do. And uh, I'll I'll be, I'll be seeing you around. So uh, okay, I'm going to read familiar words here from Ephesians 6, and beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains." that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. 
Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Just a brief prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Now, as I have read that passage, a number of you have been saying to yourselves, oh, here we go, another talk on uh, Gurnall's uh, The Christian in Complete Armor. Um, we're going to have to wave our way all the way through these different uh, pieces of equipment and so on. Well, set your minds at rest. No, we're not. Uh, we're, going, we're going to actually consider uh, just two verses, um, uh, a verse that begins 19, at least in the ESV, halfway through the sentence. And I'll tell you why and how it is we've arrived here. Uh, before uh, the weekend, um, I, uh, Joe was in touch with me and said, you know, we have our prayer time uh, in our church. How should we pray for you? And uh, I can't remember just exactly how I replied, but it was striking to me uh, that the request would come in that way. And it got me thinking about, if you like, the flip side of things. We know as pastors that if our prayer, if, if our, the activities of 24 hours appeared as a pie chart behind us, with prayer as a sliver in that pie chart, we would be ashamed, actually, I would be ashamed for you to see uh, my pie chart. We know that we are called to pray. We know that we must pray. We know that public prayer is often a hard exercise. But I don't want to think about that. I don't want us to uh, be pressed down, as it were, under the burden of that. We uh, take it as uh, the exhortation of Scripture, and we look to the Lord for his enabling. But rather, what I want us to notice this morning and think about is not our responsibility to pray, but the great need in each of our lives for others to pray for us, and particularly for our congregations to get under the burden of prayer in relationship to the responsibility that is given to us. And the way that we come at this is because here uh, Paul, having exhorted uh, the, uh, the, the listeners, the readers there in Ephesus, having given them this comprehensive call to prayer— you notice uh, uh, all kinds of prayer, praying at all times, with all perseverance, for all the saints. And then, almost uh, casually, almost, uh, almost inadvertently, he then says, and also for me. Also for me. In fact, the end of this Ephesian letter gives us such an indication of the tenderness, if you like, of, of Paul. <laughs> there in verse 21, this is not our text, but I mention it now, so I'll just stay with it for a moment. So, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. He recognizes that they care how he is. 
that they care about what he's doing. And our people do too. I'm going to give you somebody who will tell you how things are going. Why? So that they might be informed? Yes, but not really. So that they might pray for him. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the first time we're introduced uh, to Saul of Tarsus, following his conversion, as Luke records it, go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. He is praying. Now, here we find him nearing the end of his journey through life, and he's aware of his need for the prayers of his people. When Spurgeon, who, as we know, was a phenomenally effective preacher in Victorian England, when he was asked to explain the success of his ministry, he said in a simple sentence, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. So what I want us to notice, and very straightforwardly, and in the first place is this, that although we can refer to Paul as the mighty apostle, Paul was not a superhero. He was not in any way a superhero. In writing to Timothy, he referred to himself, you remember, as the chief of sinners. In an earlier letter, in writing to Ephesus, he refers to himself as the least of all the saints. What do you have to say about yourself? That's the great question. That was the question that was put to John the Baptist, wasn't it? What do you have to say about yourself? Who are you? Some of us love that question. Oh, goodness. The person who asks it is going to regret ever having asked it. <laughs> well, let me tell you. And, and, and furthermore, and of course, <laughs> not to say anything about, you know. And the person's like, oh, his eyes have glazed over a long time ago. What, what do you have to say about yourself? I think this points... I think this points to his vulnerability, his vulnerability. Now, I'm not a fan of what I call naked preaching. I'm not a fan of the pastor getting up and trying to explain to everybody how wretched he is. He doesn't need to do that. At least I don't. My people know how wretched I am. I don't need to use up sermon time explaining that to him. But one of the things that we may become adept at trying to conceal is the fact of our own vulnerability. Now, this comes across as we read Paul's letters. For example, here in this section, he doesn't say, you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. No, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, he's not immune to the insinuations, the accusations of the enemy. He was able to write to Timothy about the time when people will be unprepared to endure sound preaching. And the reason he could write with such clarity concerning that was not simply his knowledge of the purposes of God, but because of his own personal experience. Remember, he was able to say to Timothy, all who are in Asia turned away from me. In other words, I've known this wholesale desertion, the dwindling, if you like, of numbers. Uh, the members that were present there and have drifted away. His congregation that was once larger, it is gone. I think he's vulnerable in this area. 
Secondly, we might consider the fact that he is vulnerable also to pride, to pride. Now, if we doubt this, uh, we just simply go to uh, 2 Corinthians 12. And it comes across so wonderfully straightforwardly in J.B. Phillips's paraphrase, I think it is, where, where P- Phillips paraphrases it, to keep, to keep me from getting a big head. To keep me from getting a big head, there was given to me a messenger of Satan, a thorn, to keep me from becoming conceited, a messenger to harass me, to make sure that I don't get such an inflated head that I'll be no use to anybody at all. You know, as pastors, we need wives if for no other reason. (laughs) See, this is is when you know you're in a group that's a good group. I mean, I don't even need to finish my sentences. (laughs) And if our wives uh, don't take care of it, our teenage children will. They're for sure. He's vulnerable to depression. Really? To depression? Yeah, I think so. Second Corinthians, you can read it on, uh, on your own later on, chapter 1, around verses 3 to 11. Again, let me give it to you in Phillips because it comes across so clearly. He says to his readers, you should know that we were completely overwhelmed. The burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves that this was the end. Yet, we believe now that we had this experience of coming to the end of our tether that we might learn to trust, not in ourselves, but in God. And here, you can join in and help us by praying for us. I see this again. And also for me. I need your prayers. 1871, Spurgeon wrote to his congregation. He, at the age of 37, had been forced to take three months off because of illness. And the nature of the illness, as you will know if you've read the biographies, was partly in his mind. Not entirely, but partly. And he writes to his congregation in 1871 as follows. Dear friends, the furnace still blows around me. Since I last preached to you, I have been brought very low. My spirit has been prostrate with depression. I entreat you not to cease your supplications. I am as a potter's vessel when it is utterly broken, useless, and laid aside. Now, remember who's writing this. This is the most effective preacher in the entire British Isles writing to his congregation. He continues, Nights of watching and days of weeping have been mine, but I hope the cloud is passing. In this relative trial, a very keen one, I again ask your prayers. So prays your suffering pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
We wrestle not, says Paul, against flesh and blood. This battle is not a political battle. This is not an engagement with the forces that we can see, but rather with cosmic powers. You, he says, have been raised up with him into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and in those heavenly places the battle rages. You should know these things, he says. And I want you to be praying. Make sure all the time, all supplication, all the saints, everybody. And also for me. For me. Not only is it an indication of his vulnerability, but it is a clear expression of his humility. And there is a genuine link, isn't there, between these two things. Again, not a self-assertive or aggrandizing kind of perspective that draws attention to ourselves, but rather to acknowledge that the self-assured of us see no real need to pray when we begin to rely upon ourselves. It's only when we're brought to an understanding of our need. It's only when the accusations of the evil one begin to debilitate us, begin to unhinge us, that we end up realizing, if my people don't undergird this ministry in prayer, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Don't let's get caught up in trying to analyze what the messenger of Satan was. Some of you are very good at that. I look forward to reading your comments, maybe. Um, But it does mean something very straightforward, and that is that a bad thing has been brought into his life for a good reason. A bad thing brought into his life for a good reason And the ultimate source, of course, is the hand of God, but it has come employed by the evil one. Presumably, the evil one coming as the messenger. What is the messenger? You know, Luther's, when they asked Luther, how do you know it's the devil talking to you or Jesus? He said, my God speaks with sweet reasonableness, which is quite wonderful, but the evil one doesn't. Did he come to Paul and say to him, hey, Paul, if you're as useful as, as you think you are, why are you experiencing these things? If you really are the great apostle of God, why, why has there been such a wholesale desertion in Asia? People are not really interested in you anymore. Do you really believe in the God that you serve? These, you see, are the kinds of things the evil one says. And so his request for prayer makes perfect sense. And it's not unique. He does it all the time. I leave you again to search that out. Right into the Colossians, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And almost immediately he says, and at the same time, pray for us. In Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians in the second letter, pray for us that the word of the Lord may go forward unhindered. How is it that the word of the Lord will go forward unhindered? Well, as the people pray. The word of the Lord will go forward. Spurgeon again said to the young men that he was encouraging in the task of preaching, listen, he says, fellows, you can preach the same sermons to far greater effect if your people will pray. The exact same sermon to greater effect because the word of the Lord goes home unhindered for we have divine power to break down strongholds. What strongholds? all the insinuations and accusations of the evil one. 
that comes to unsettle us, to destabilize us. Don't listen. This isn't for you and how it comes home to us. It comes home to me at least. The sword of the Spirit, the scalpel by which the teaching pastor has the privilege of opening up, dissecting, making clear the truth of God's Word. And the key, the prayers of the people of God. Not our giftedness, not our articulation, not our preparation. It's it's phenomenally humbling, isn't it? Somebody is converted, and you go home and you say to yourself, well, I really really clinched that at the end. I can see why that happened. (laughs) And that, that was the devil telling you that. Because one day in the glory you'll find out that some lady sitting, you know, three rows from the back uh, prayed for you as you lost your place in your notes. And, uh, and, sh- and she was back there saying, use him, God, use him. He's, he's lost it. He's lost it again. Okay. Now, He wasn't just asking for prayer in general. His request is specific. And when you read the prayers of Paul, uh, you realize that his focus in prayer is not on matters of passing personal concern. You read even his prayers in, in, in the Colossian letter or in, here in Ephesus again. And what is so striking about it as he prays for the people is most of the stuff that's in our uh, prayer meetings isn't even mentioned in his prayers. Now, that doesn't mean that the things that we're praying about shouldn't be prayed about, but it does identify the fact that his focus was kingdom-oriented. He wasn't just... You know, who is it says, uh, Howard Hendricks, uh, I think it was, said, you know, the average prayer meeting, no, it wasn't, it was Don Carson. The, the average prayer meeting spends more time trying to keep Christians out of, hell, out of heaven than praying sinners out of hell. You know, bless Mrs. Reynolds, she's back in again, you know. Like the Lord's going, oh, thanks for letting me know. Like, I, you think I didn't know that? Uh, please be with Tommy. I already am with Tommy. Let's get on. Let's let's get on to something that will advance the kingdom, for goodness' sake. Let's let's. That's why the average prayer meeting in a church just eventually dwindles to nothing. There are people saying the same thing week after week, instead of the brother that just prayed before. I love that. Give us this. Give us that. Give us the world. Give us America. Give give us Lord. Big prayers. Now, you will notice that this is the case here as he identifies his request. Pray for me. He's not concerned about liberation. He's concerned about proclamation. The strength that he requests is not for his own personal confrontation with the devil, but for his evangelistic ministry by which he might enjoy the privilege of seeing people liberated from the dominion of the evil one. And when he explained to King Agrippa, uh, back in, uh, it's recorded in Acts chapter 26, he quoted the charge that the Lord Jesus had given to him to do this very thing. And so it's no surprise. He prays right down that line. That words, 
that words, or King James, I think, that utterance, utterance. I think utterance is good, don't you? Because it, we, we don't use it usually. Words, we got words coming out of our ears, uh, as it were. And uh, an abundance of words. He's, he's asking for that utterance should be given me. Perhaps we should think of it particularly in terms of um, 1 Corinthians 2. And uh, what is it? Verses 4 there. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much pre- and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, perhaps we could say that he identifies the difference between saying something and having something to say. You know, the question is, are you going to say something? Yes. Do you have something to say? That's the more important question. So I want you to pray also for me that words, that words may be given to me. Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of your tone. As you have taught, so let me teach. Your erring children, lost and lone. The hymn writer gets it. Not only in word, he says to the Thessalonians, the gospel was received by you as it came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Again, the hymn writer, Oh, teach me, Lord, that I may teach the precious things thou dost impart and wing my words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. How can this be? Nobody understands how to preach. None of us really know how to preach. Jesus was, could preach. Apart from that, it's all an approximation. It is a great mystery. It's humbling. It's right that it should humble us. It's wrong that it should paralyze us. And if Paul prayed, pray for me that words might be given to me. Are you kidding me, Paul? You wrote the, half the Jolly New Testament. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if he is praying, what about us? Well, to whom was he speaking? To whom was he speaking? Well, he was speaking to the soldiers. He was speaking to the visitors. He was speaking to the contacts. He was speaking to the people that he could speak to. I mean, Philemon, what, what a day that must have been when, when Onesimus, you know, shows back up again. Hey, I'm back. Oh, yeah, you're back all right. Yeah. Yeah, I've been waiting for you. No, 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 no. I met a guy. (laughs) Was it just like Jesus and the lady? Come see a man. They're like, what? You've had five husbands. You're living with a guy, and you want us to come see a man? No, 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 no. I met a man. 
I met a man, he told me everything I ever did. Lord, give me the words. Onesimus. Hey, Mr. Useful. Now, what is he to do and how is he to do it? Well, I pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. Boldly. Now, here we go. Boldly. You say, well, of course. He is the Apostle Paul. He's Saul of Tarsus. And uh, in other words, he's just asking for something routine. Well, no, not at all. Because boldness clearly, despite his background, did not come naturally to Paul. It didn't come naturally to Paul. We have to take at face value surely what he says. This is not some kind of pathetic attempt at humility when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, you know, when I came to you, when I came to you, people weren't going, my, what a remarkable fellow. Look how tall and and handsome he is. Uh, and And his words. No, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, it's a bad day for us guys when we when we start to say to ourselves, I've got this. I was flying over here, I had a, a little boy with me and uh, he wanted to see my notes. And uh, showed him my notes. He was singularly unimpressed. Um, which, which I was too, but that's by the way. But he said, can you preach without notes? I said, yeah. He said, why do you have notes? I said, to keep me from preaching without notes. And then, and then I explained to him that I've been doing this since 1975. But I write out all of my notes in the same way that I did when I was 23 years old and I was 69 on Saturday. Not because I have to, but out of discipline. Because the longer that we go, And the more facility we have with words, and the greater our ease in front of a congregation, there is an exponential risk that attaches to that. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the antidote to that is in writing out of notes. All I'm telling you is that for me, the discipline of doing this is vital to prevent me from doing something other than that. The boldness then won't be a boldness of personality. It will be actually a boldness that sometimes surprises us. That there's a forcefulness in the way in which we've said something that we didn't even plan to say. Because we realize that we're taken up, as it were, with the very proclamation that we're making. 
and the gospel mystery that he was proclaiming and that he has written about in the earlier part of this, this letter to the Ephesians had so gripped him. The amazing news that Jew and Gentile alike can and must be saved through the work of the crucified Messiah. And Paul is consumed by this. And so it is that he says, I want to be able to proclaim this in a way that is bold. Is bold. Now, when you think about it, this is an apostolic pattern, isn't it? And I'm just thinking now that when Peter and John are released from the custody of those who had opposed them uh, back in in Acts chapter 4, the reason that the people were quite uh, overwhelmed by them was when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That, 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 that was the nature of the... How could these fellows be so bold about this? I mean, they didn't go to any decent university. They're not that significant. I think that one fellow was a fisherman, wasn't he? They're saying to one another. But did you, were you not struck by the way they said that? That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved? Can you believe they said that? And can you believe they said it with such firmness? And the people said, no, I can't believe it at all. And so when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And so on. For in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. And so on and so on and so on. And so we pray that you will grant to them boldness that they, filled with the Holy Spirit, will continue to speak the Word of God with boldness, with boldness. Loved ones, I think it is the day for boldness. In all, in, but we've got, to get it, we've got to get it at the right place, on the right subject, in the right way. Okay? Does it... We've all got strong feelings about all kinds of stuff that's going on. The politicization of so many different things has uh, brought out of us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in some cases, a little more ugly than we would like. And it's very easy, at least for me, to get real bold about stuff that I don't really need to get as bold about and to fail to be bold about the things that really matter. The... The, the cosmic battle that rages in the heavenly places over Western culture is impossible to avoid. And it strikes at the very heart of the gospel itself. The nature of what a family is, the nature of what a man is, what a woman is, the nature of what truth is, and so on. And if we, as members of um, the clergy... If we as pastors, shepherds over our flock, wimp out in these areas, then we can we can be forgiven for giving such a dreadful lead to our congregations. Uh, Wilberforce, uh, in the in the context of Britain many years ago, uh, was was engaged in a two-handed fight. Uh, on the one hand, if you like 
proclamation, and on the other hand, refutation. Refuting what isn't true and proclaiming what is true. And some of us are very good at refuting, and we end up building a kind of uh, a spirit of animosity amongst people who are, end up being like a, a, a whole host of Waldorfs and Statlers, those two old guys in the Muppets that just sit up on a balcony just complaining about everything that's going on. Can you believe that? Look at the state of this. Look at that. Look at this. And people love that. Yeah, I agree. I hate it. Don't you hate it? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. So where's the gospel right now? Oh, we'll get to that later. We're doing refutation of the moment. Okay. Some of us are proclaimers. There it is, over there. Look at it over there. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. Yeah, but what does it mean? Don't worry about that. Look at it over there. No. If you're going to teach your children about animals, you have to teach them. This is a cow. It goes like this. Moo. Okay. And this is a horse. It is not a cow. And so if you don't teach them that a horse is not a cow, then they're in trouble. And so you know saying what's going to happen to them, riding around, uh, milking horses and riding around and cows. <laughs> and say, well, how did you get yourself in this? There was my papa. He told me. No, he didn't explain to you this is this, but that is not this. Now, loved ones, this is where we've got to be clear. We've got to be prepared in proclaiming the gospel, in saying what is, we have to say what isn't. So, for example, we believe in legal tolerance, right? We believe in the tolerance that our uh, democracy affords, at least has done up until this point, to be able to say what we believe about certain things and to afford to others the same opportunity to say what they believe, even though we disagree with it. That's legal tolerance. Social tolerance, we understand that people who are different from us and came from different places and dress in a different way and have a different background, like Scotsmen that wear kilts and things like that, we have to say to our children, now be nice to him. He's not wearing a dress. It's a kilt. Be nice to him. You've got to be nice. We understand that. But intellectual tolerance, intellectual tolerance that, are, that affords acceptance to every idea, no matter what it is, we can't get to it. We can't. My Jewish friends in Cleveland believe that Jesus is not the Messiah. I believe he is the Messiah. We can't both be right. The Muslim doctors that are working this morning at the Cleveland Clinic, many of them highly moral, and their children, many of them in terms of moral purity, are far more significant than the average evangelical child. Those, those guys believe in the scales, that the good that they're able to do will outweigh the bad. We say, no, it can't be scales. It is a cross. We can both be right. We can both be right. The Hindus believe that the incarnation has taken place again and again and again and again. We believe that the incarnation was a unique and unrepeatable event. And we can both be right. Now, don't let's misunderstand boldness for arrogance, but boldness, the kind of courage that is needed, is the courage 
for which he prays. Being bold doesn't mean being unkind. There's a sweetness in it. It's not fanatical. It's not sectarian. We simply bear the torch. In the face of external persecution, in the face of internal opposition. Uh, The final minister in... um, the Presbyterian Church in New Milnes, which is in Ayrshire in Scotland, was a man by the name of MacLeod. He was the last uh, Gaelic speaker uh, in that congregation there. And he wrote a hymn um, which uh, contains these lines. Courage, brothers. Uh, it began, Courage, brothers, do not stumble. And... Uh, he, he had faced uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And it contains the, it contains the verse, um, Some will love thee, some will hate thee, some will praise thee, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee. Trust in God and do what's right. Well, I need to take that to myself. Perhaps you do too. So let's try and draw this to a close. We, wanted it, we do want to have lunch. At least I do. That was part of the deal. <laughs> there has been a progression of thought in this, which I'm sure I've done a wonderful job of clouding for you. <laughs> I started off by saying that Paul was no superhero, and he reveals himself as being both vulnerable and humble, that his prayer request was not some generalized statement, but it was specific for utterance and for boldness. And he explains that it is on account of this that he was an ambassador in chains. Again, Luke records for us when he came, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. It's because of the hope of Israel, he said to them, that I am wearing this chain. In other words, it was his faithfulness that had cost him his freedom. His faithfulness cost him his freedom. I'm not a prophet. I'm certainly not the son of a prophet. But if things continue as they are, one or two of us are going to go to jail for holding true to the gospel. And I hope it's a good good guy which limits the possibility significantly. As, a, as a, But you know what I mean? You know what I mean? I mean, if, you know, if things continue as they are, it's not difficult to imagine that any faithful pastor trying to unpack the second half of Romans chapter 1 is going to be on the receiving end, not only of opposition but actually of persecution. Have you noticed um, how Stalinesque things have become? The other day, watching a, a soccer game in in the the UK from from here, but watching it on TV, I noticed that in the hoardings that go around advertising things, it's it, it came up Liverpool FC forward slash abuse reports. And what it's actually saying there is, we want you to tell 
on your friends and your family if they violate some of our now accepted creeds for sexual matters, for race matters, and so on. In other words, that's, that's what Stalin did, right? That's exactly what he did. He made sure that he didn't just have secret police who were watching out for things. He encouraged the general population to spill the beans on members of their family who were prepared to violate the accepted norms. Now you think about that. Our pastor, do you know what he said? He said this. He said this about homosexual activity. He said that people would receive the due penalty for their sexual incontinence in their own bodies. He said that? Yes. Well, an ambassador for the gospel in chains, God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors enjoy special privileges, access, freedom, diplomatic immunity. They speak with the authority of the government that they represent. If they had a chain, it would be a sign of adornment, a symbol of dignity, a signal of a symbol of power. Paul's chain is a very different chain. I am an ambassador in chains. Why? Because he represents a higher throne, a higher throne than this world has known. He represents the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. His painful prison chains he regards as a royal insignia of his service of Jesus. And once again, you will notice, he makes it perfectly clear that he's not seeking their sympathy. He's not praying for freedom, except for the freedom of the gospel and for their help in declaring it boldly. Well, how did it go? How did it go? The evidence is at the end of his story when he finally writes uh, his swan song and uh, he writes to Timothy there in chapter 4. And he says, here's the deal. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully, fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Well, how did you do on Sunday, Pastor? Well, the Lord stood by me and he gave me strength so that through me, yeah, vulnerable little me, the message of the gospel might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Well, Let's just pause for a moment of silence and and a prayer. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father, thank you that uh, you put your treasure in old clay pots so that the transcendent power might be seen to belong to God and not to us. Help us in our task, we pray. Help us to help one another by our prayers. Help us to remind our congregations that we're not even close to super, let alone superheroes, and that we are entirely dependent, that they would stand by us in prayer. Thank you for those who do. Thank you that in eternity it will become clear that uh, prayer was the work and preaching was just gathering up the results. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.